0: even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, through the world does not know you, I know you and that they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God.
1: Well, as Paul and Sarah said at the beginning, today is the last in our series on John's farewell discourse. Jesus' last proper conversation with his friends, really, before he goes to his death. From here, he will take that final journey to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be seized, tried, and crucified. He brings his words to an end here with a prayer to his father, the prayer that we started looking at last week. Here Jesus, knowing that he's going to his death, commits those he loves into his father's hands. And so in many ways it's only fitting that we bring this farewell conversation to an end on Remembrance Sunday. Because how many thousands and millions of soldiers in those last quiet hours and minutes before their final battle, before the whistle sounded and the guns roared and they went over the top, would have composed one last letter home to their loved ones, would have said one last prayer asking the Father to watch over and protect those they loved. Just like them, Jesus knows his death approaches. And so he asks his father to protect and to encourage those he loves. But Jesus can also see further. He looks ahead to all those who will ever be his disciples and prays to his father on behalf of them, including us. And this final section of his prayer has two major interconnected, interwoven themes undergirding it. Unity and glory. Unity and glory. And we're going to try and separate them a little bit and look at each of them in turn. First looking at unity and then looking at glory. But firstly then, unity. When I type Unity into Google, the top results are, number one, Unity, a real-time game development platform. 2D, 3D, VD, I don't know what that means. Number two, Unity Trust Bank, quote unquote. The ethical bank you can be proud of, aren't they all? Uh, Number three, Unity, a theater in Liverpool. And number four, my personal favorite, Unity Brewing Company. With an interesting sounding, brave noise, hazy pale ale. I don't think I've ever had a hazy pale ale. I'm not sure how they go together, but nevertheless. Needless to say, none of these are the type of unity that Jesus has in mind here. And although Remembrance Sunday, of course, reminds us that unity is generally a good thing. Especially when it helps to prevent the carnage of war. Jesus is praying for a particular kind of unity here. He's praying for unity for God's people, verse 21. A unity which is both between God's people, a sideways unity, and is with God himself. An up-down vertical unity, so both sideways and up and down. Let's look at this unity a little more. I think... Oh, that is much better, Jez. Jez told me before the service that he'd tidied up my slides. I'd gone on a kind of paint thing and just drawn. I don't know how you managed to do that. You could teach me that. That's much better. I like that. Um, But let's, sorry, that's an aside. Let's look at this unity a little more. Jesus' prayer shows us that this unity he's asking the Father for comes from the Trinity, And it comes down to us. And this actually happens on two levels. And bear with me here. It's a little bit complicated. Because on one level, this unity that comes from the Godhead, from the Father and the Son, well, it comes from them because, of course, we see in our passage, the Son asks the Father for it, for us, and the Father grants it to us. So in one level, it comes from the Trinity because the Father and the Son have worked together to give us unity. That alone is a real blessing and a thing to be thankful for. But there's an even deeper level, a second level in which this unity comes to us from the Father and the Son. Because Jesus' prayer shows us that this unity we're being granted is the actual divine unity of the Father and the Son. It's their actual unity that they share together as Father and Son. They're giving us their own unity. They're uniting us in their own unity. Do you see the difference? This isn't just from the Father and the Son, in that they've decided together that they're going to give us something. They're giving us what is actually their own unity. Here's Jesus' train of thought in his prayer. He says that all those who believe in him through the message of the gospel, verse 20, not only know the Father through Jesus, but also have Jesus in them, and so have the Father's divine love for his Son Jesus in them too. Verse 26. And this is what brings divine unity to us. Look at how Jesus describes it in verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, sideways, just as you are in me and I am in you, up, down, May they also be in us. May they have unity sideways, and may they be in us, as he is in each as they are in each other. Verses 22: 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. This is a unity of. The Trinity, a complete unity. So, the unity of the people of God is the unity of the Father and the Son poured out onto them. And so, it's no surprise then that this unity, which comes from the Father and the Son, from the Trinity, well, it reflects the Trinity from which it came. How does it do that? Well, for starters, this unity between disciples, it, it doesn't mean the creation of a great big blob. You know, this classic film, if anyone's seen it, Steve McQueen's first starring role. Um, I think they spent like £10 or something on it. But it's not like that. It's not like that type of unity. It's not like we're a bunch of robots pre-programmed to act in exactly the same way without personality or individual character. No. Look... At the Trinity. Though the Father and the Son are perfectly one in nature, they are two separate persons. But of course, as well as being united in their nature, they are united in their will, in their purpose, in their love, and in their action. And that's what's key for us here we are to be like the Father and the Son, in that we are to be united with them and with each other. Not in nature, because we're not God, of course. Not in personhood, because we're not the Father and the Son. But in their will. In our purpose, in our love, and in our action. But what does that purpose love and action, look like? Well, in our passage, let's look at that unity in love first. The love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, although he isn't mentioned here, is one of the key things that binds the Trinity together. We see it here as Jesus talks about the love of Father that is in him and that he is in the Father. It's a constant, flowing, perfect love between them. And Jesus says that we will have access to that same love to help bind us to It's verse 26. The love you have for me may be in them. This love, well, it works a bit like glue. It binds us together with each other and with them. But what about purpose and action? Well, we're united in Jesus' message, verse 20, in the Bible, that we believe and that we seek to obey. And through our believing and obeying the Bible, and through, of course, our loving each other, we become what Jesus calls a witness to the world. This is our purpose and action. Believe, obedience, witness. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you are. Have sent me. This witness of unity in purpose, love, and action is important to Jesus. He mentions it twice in verse 21 and 23. The way of the world is is to divide. We remember that today, don't we? Remembrance Sunday. And we remember the awful results of it. That's what sin does. It cuts off our connection with God and it splinters our relationships with each other. It makes us think we know better than others and know better than God. And sadly, we see it in the wider church too sometimes, don't we? Whether in England or around the world, the church is faced with division. With a belief from some that they know better than others or that they know better from, than God. And for various reasons, that unity that Jesus prays for, is undermined. And the result, ultimately, is that that witness that Jesus longs for here is badly damaged. But the good news is that there is unity too. Jesus has prayed for it and promised it, and we have it. God is answering it. If you ever doubt that, if you're ever tempted to feel too down from the divisions that are in the church and in the world, well, you only have to take a look around this room. A room full of people from all different walks of life, from nations all over the world, united together in praise and worship and witness of God and love for each other. Just think of those church lunches that we've had. Food laid out from every corner of the world. Glorious carnage as people eat and chat and have fun and build that love and witness to the world. For the ultimate reason Jesus prays for unity is because of our second point. Because it leads to glory. Glory is our second point today. Turn to the person next to you. It's another big word, isn't it? What do you think the word glory means? Just 20 seconds. First thing that comes to your head, I think glory is go. Well then, sorry, (laughs) I've not got lots of time. Let's bring those thoughts together. Maybe with it being Remembrance Sunday, you thought of military glory, of Napoleon or Nelson or someone like that, what you might really call military fame. Maybe you thought of sport, Olympic glory, or glory hunter, football supporters. We won't mention what team that might be. Sporting fame. But what Jesus is talking about here is God's glory. Glory really is what God is because of who he is. It's his perfection, his perfect nature his presence, his perfect character and being, especially when he's revealing some of that to human beings. And we see that in the Old Testament, don't we, at Mount Sinai, with Moses and the elders. Or we see it in Isaiah 6, with Isaiah's vision of God. And a common theme in all of the Old Testament visions of God's glory is that they are both, on the one hand, life-changing, awe-inspiring, breathtaking experiences, and yet, on the other hand, they only ever reveal a tiny smidgen of who the fullness of God really is. And the point there is that, well, really seeing God in all of his awesome glory, it would be like standing in front of the sun. We would just be obliterated by the awesome holiness and glory of God in our fallen and sinful human nature. And so what Jesus says here in our passage today, in light of that, is amazing. We've already seen that Jesus says he will be in us, making the Father known to us and sharing the Father's love with us. But he's also going to do something else. Verse 22. He shares in us his Father's glory. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Jesus is saying that as we share in the knowledge and love of Father and Son, which brings that divine unity, we also receive God's glory. This glory doesn't belong to us, of course, it's from God, it's from the Father. It comes from Him and is shared by Him, but Jesus says we get to receive it without being obliterated. And so one of the reasons that Jesus values unity among God's people so highly is that it shows that glory to the world as we reflect the purpose and love of God in our daily lives. And so, the church, the people of God, where we become a living, breathing testimony to the love, the wisdom, and the glory of God shown to us in the gospel of salvation for everyone who believes. This is one of Jesus' great hopes for his disciples, for us. That we would be glorifying God and revealing His glory. And so the big question for us today is if we would call ourselves disciples, followers of Jesus, do we think about this? Do we do this in our lives? When the world sees us, do they see someone who has this divine unity? Who is united to God in obedience to his words. Verse 20. But united with each other. In that purpose, love and action. Is that important to us? And do they see in you a love that reflects the love of the father. The one who so loved the world that he sent his only son. Do they see God's glory in you? Just to end on. One final thing to say about glory, because ultimately the great hope of all those who follow Jesus is found in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Do you remember I said that the way the Old Testament describes the glory of God is a bit like standing in front of the sun? That if we really stood before that glory, because of our sinful nature, we'd be obliterated by it. Well, right at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 23, it reimagines that picture. It looks to the time when this verse, verse 24, comes to full fruition, when we will be with Jesus and see the Father and the Son's glory completely and fully. In that place there will be no need for sun or moon, it says, because the glory of God gives it light. For those who've put their trust in Jesus, who've become his disciples, that great glory won't be something to fear. In fact, it will be the very heart of Of our happiness. Because this is what Jesus came for, he says. This is the climax of the Christian walk, the perfect happiness awaiting all his disciples. This is our great hope. This is the great hope of all those we love who are facing or who have faced the shadow of death. When our faith will be made sight. And all the sin and suffering and sorrow will be fully and finally eclipsed in the fullness of God's perfect unity, glory, and love. Amen.